Hi, and welcome back to the Spartan History Podcast. This is episode 17, Apollo's Faithful. In wrapping up the last chapter of the Lacedaemonians' narrative, I gave the indication that this episode would be one tackling their early expansion and religious practices. As the title hopefully suggests, that will not be the case. As so often happens, I get a little carried away whilst writing, and soon realise that both of these topics deserved an episode in their own right, if the story was to be told in its entirety. Moreover, trying to segue religion into aggressive expansion really wasn't working out for me, borne out by my inability to create an episode title that encompassed everything I wanted to discuss. Tracking Hellenic mythology and spiritualism from the fall of the Mycenaeans and through the Dark Age is quite frankly impossible. Even before then, in the age of Linear B text, we can only make best guess approximations as to what the Bronze Age Greeks thought and felt regarding religion. This is in stark contrast to the fully crystallised pantheon we find in the Archaic Age's earliest writing, namely the Iliad. Homer's cornucopia of gods, myths and legends is akin to a supernova bursting into life in our imaginations. An amalgamation of embedded legend, oral mythology and good old-fashioned campfire tales so broad and diverse it laid the foundation for everything that came after. Hesiod, coming along perhaps a generation or two later, solidified that foundation. While the two fathers of Epic didn't necessarily agree with each other on everything, their broad strokes are concordant. Nearly every author who came after followed in either one or the other's footsteps. This homogenization of worship helped weld together the many different emerging city-states and was a pivotal factor in dragging the Greeks out of the clutching Dark Ages. Along with the alphabet, Olympic Games, and the rise of the Delphic Oracle, these things helped foster an idea of Pan-Hellenism, or All-Greekness, across the land. Now whilst an awe-inspiring genius, Homer didn't create this diverse world of mythology, nor most likely bring it together for the first time. He was merely, and I use that word lightly, the final chapter in the development of religious practice that became the Olympian pantheon. Whatever was there prior was used as a stepping stone for, and a scaffolding to support, the new faith. An example for this method of co-option is readily available if we turn for a moment to the increasing Christianization of the 3rd and 4th century Roman Empire. The earlier Romans celebrated a festival to Sol Invictus, an eastern sun deity, on December the 25th. Close enough to the winter solstice, the Romans used this event to mark the rebirth of the sun, as the days indeed became longer afterwards. Tied to their public holiday calendar, the early Roman Christians saw this day as fitting for the birth of their prophet, who, like the sun, was immortal in his power. Now that theory is somewhat contentious, but religious co-option is a well-understood phenomenon all the same, and one that I believe played out extensively throughout Greece over the 10th, 9th and 8th centuries BCE. I think that the Dark Ages were home to a plethora of animalistic deities, spirits, and localised divine hierarchies and all manner of Aboriginal worship. Some of these things too were co-opted by Homer and his ilk. The Nymphs and the Furies are two such examples that transitioned at largely unchanged, whereas Helen and her divine brothers are another two that underwent somewhat of a metamorphosis. Places or landmarks of holy significance simply became places of equal significance to the incoming pantheon. In Sparta, like other Greek cities, religion was of paramount importance. As we've seen in previous episodes, the Dorian culture of the Spartans supplanted the earlier Archean one and subsumed many of its ideals with their own. An expose of the city's earliest practices will give us the chance to look at spiritual co-option in detail and give us a feel for the fibre of the city's belief structures. 
Laconia is a fantastic microcosm to look at as many of its most holy sanctuaries were dualistic in function, that is, a combination of indigenous and foreign faiths. Therefore, we can see the consolidation of the new pantheon in real time, so to speak, putting us in good stead as we move forward with the narrative in future episodes, because as you'll see, they took piety extremely seriously and it was intrinsic to their society. To the surprise of many who take up an interest in ancient Sparta, in complete opposition to the indelible impression they have left on the record by their actions in the 5th century, their relative spectres before then. The story is definitely there to be found, and it really does go a long way to explaining those later, historically defining moments. They had an incredibly well-developed religious calendar that can be traced back to the earliest moments of their history. We'll step through some of the most important dates on that schedule, and try to understand what relevance they had to Spartan life. An incredibly pious people, religion formed a cornerstone of Sparta's civilization. So much so, that along with the hunt and war, propitiation of the gods was the only other viable excuse for not attending the nightly communal mess halls all citizens were required to partake of. Much to their chagrin, they even missed the Battle of Marathon in 490 BCE, arriving a day late due to their strict adherence of worship. Herodotus insinuates that their tardiness was due to having not yet completed the Carnea festival, held in honour of Apollo Carneos. The duality in the title of Apollo is something very common to the deities of Sparta. They had also a sanctuary to Artemis Orthia, and to the south, in Amicle, which constituted the fifth village of Sparta, there was a temple to Apollo Hyakinthos. This duality of title isn't individual to Spartan worship, but it provides us a great place to study the nature of religion in the Greek world post-Dark Age, against a backdrop of Laconian practice. The first facet we'll look at is possibly the most famous, that of Artemis Orthia. Archaeologists excavated this sanctuary in the early part of the 20th century, and their work centred on what was the most significant remains of ancient Sparta still visible, in a place that's quite generally undistinguished for its historical relics. It was here, on the right or west bank of the Eurotus, that still visible above ground level were the remnants of a Roman theatre. Dating to the 3rd century CE, this relatively speaking modern building did a marvellous job of preserving what it was built around, the sanctuary and altar to Artemis Orthia. Over five seasons, the British Archaeological School of Athens uncovered a stratified story of the Spartans' relationship with the site, dating back to the 900s BCE. The Roman theatre, which was the last chapter of that story, was set up by the Romanized Spartans of the time, over an earlier, possibly timber structure, that served the same purpose. That was, to provide a place to sit for bloodthirsty tourists who had travelled to the place in order to watch the ritualised flogging of Spartan youths. A mockery of an ancient practice, so popular that even Plutarch records himself as having witnessed it. At that time it was indeed considered the sanctuary of Artemis Orthia, though the pre-700 BCE inscriptive evidence gleaned from deposits of votive offerings indicates that at its earliest, the goddess worshipped in the place was known simply as Orthea. There is very little that we can say factually about Orthea, but much can be deduced by the name itself and the location of her altar and temple. To deal with the former first, she clearly is a goddess for the Spartans, and the Spartans alone, as the name Orthea occurs nowhere else in Greece or the wider Mediterranean. Depending on which theory you prefer, she was either brought to Laconia by the returning sons of the Heraclidae during the Dorian migration, or was worshipped by the Dorian underclass during the Mycenaean times, 
and rose to prominence with the Spartans during their ascension. Situated nearby to the banks of the Eurotus, which is today so near that it has partially eroded some of the site, within the village of Limni, which is one of the four villages of Sparta, the site was sacred to all Spartans. Because of this location, it's a safe assumption that Althea was a Chthonic vegetation goddess as was common with other such locations in their worship. The earliest evidence for activity for the site comes from no earlier than the 10th century BCE, which is when the early Spartans likely set up a devotional altar to Althea on the site. Over the next 200 years, we have an extensive array of votive offerings in the archaeological record that fall into three basic categories. Hundreds of small animalistic offerings were found, signifying the possibility of animal sacrifice at the altar. Literally thousands of winged female figures too were also found, These are popular at earth goddesses' holy places and are often pleas for assistance in childbirth or child-rearing. And lastly, there were many figures of young Spartan warriors which, as we'll soon see, had a particularly violent relationship with the sanctuary. By 700 BCE, the Spartans had expanded their home range significantly through war. This brought the rather geographically isolated people of the region into more frequent contact with the broader Hellenic world and its religions. It was probably at this stage that Orthea began to be conflated with the more mainstream goddess, Artemis. Both deities were responsible for childbirth, which is in and of itself strange as Artemis was childless, but nonetheless there you have it. This one's backed up by the winged female offerings. Both had an interest and were protectors of animals in the hunt, once again borne out by the votive offerings. And as Artemis was the twin of Apollo, another deity very important to the Spartans, and the Dorians more generally, the amalgamation of the two goddesses presented a good fit. Before we move on to the next case study, what were the bloodthirsty Roman tourists flocking to see? They came to see an event known as the Diamastikosis, and translated, the word means to whip harshly. A contest of endurance pivotal to early Spartan culture. By the Roman period, this ritual was nothing more than a spectacle for tourists, but its institution goes back to the very early days of the city. As best as we can tell, the very early Orthaic rituals involved animal, or quite possibly even human sacrifice to the goddess. There are several archaic references mentioning that in order to propitiate the deity, blood was needed to wash over the altar to quench her thirst. Another possible tangent between Artemis and Orthea also lies in bloody sacrifice. As we've seen previously, the sacrifice of Iphigenia at Aulis by her father Agamemnon was designed to appease Artemis. The change in this ritual was attributed, as so many other things, to Lycurgus in his infinite wisdom. He legendarily dictated that male youths, as a rite of passage, were to be scourged upon the altar in a vicious fashion, whereby the blood from this whipping would be enough to satisfy Orthea, and the practice of human sacrifice was apparently abandoned. Experts imagine the Lycurgan reasoning was one of preparing these youths for a life of pain, and as full-time adult soldiers, it would be a life that walked hand-in-hand with the receiving and giving of agony. Much emphasis was placed on Spartan warriors' habituation with pain. Plutarch relates a story of a young boy who had stolen a fox and concealed it within his cloak. Upon being caught outside of his allotted space, his trainer questioned him as to his recent whereabouts. Craftiness and theft were encouraged amongst the young men, as it was believed that resourcefulness would assist during war, but getting caught in the act was severely punishable. Accordingly, the boy gave no indications as to his activities, 
and even when the concealed fox began to gnaw away at his vitals, made no move to reveal his pain or discomfort. The boy soon collapsed, dead before his trainer, and before revealing a note of pain or his mischief. You can well imagine Spartan boys being flogged within the sanctuary of Artemis or Thea, surrounded by their families and the Gerousia. The first praying that the children didn't dishonour them, the second scrutinising any weakness that would preclude the youth from the full rights of Spartan warriorhood. Unfortunately, for those youths being tortured so in the Roman period, they couldn't look forward to the day when they would join the greatest fighting force of ancient Greece. Only more beatings when the next group of tourists arrived to see how low the mighty had fallen. Next, we're going to head south by about six kilometres along the Eurotas to the town of Amicli, where there was a sanctuary to Apollo, Hyakinthos. We'll get to how Amicli became part of Sparta in the next episode when we look at expansion, but this holy place is fascinating in that it has Archean, Dorian, and Eastern roots. We've looked at other figures in Greek mythology that have names cognately aligning with Mesopotamian or Anatolian deities in the past. Castor and Polyduces are two that spring to mind. This is unsurprising in that Greek is part of the Indo-European language group, and it stands to reason that along with language came traditions as well. Just so, we can trace the name of Hyakinthus back to eastern Anatolia simply by looking at the structure of the name. In particular, the suffix nth most assuredly is not found at all in the ancient Greek tongue. Most likely his cult was imported during the Bronze, Mycenaean Age, and his worship continued after that civilization collapsed. Amokli is one of those few places in Laconia that archaeologists can find pre-Dark Age remains of a settlement. It's highly likely that it was a place of some significance during the supremacy of Mycenae, and at the very least was a cult centre for the worship of Hyakinthus by the local Archaeans. Pausanias stresses the Archean nature for early Amicli in opposition to Dorian Sparta, a little to the north. Hyakinthus was worshipped in Amicli through the Dark Age and seemingly continued to be so after the Dorians controlled the Eurotas Valley. As we'll see time and again, the Spartans had a special relationship with Delphi, and most especially with that place's chief deity, Apollo. The question is, how did Phoebus Apollo, a god interested in music, archery and dance, become conflated with Amaclean Hyakinthus, who as best as we can tell was another Chthonic vegetation god? The answer is one that so beautifully demonstrates the purely creative and poetic nature of ancient Greek lore. It was said that Hyakinthus was a Spartan prince, the son of Amacles. His beauty was so renowned that Apollo was lured away from his home at Delphi to pursue the youth's affections. These he won over, and the two became inseparable, visiting all of Apollo's holdings across the land in a chariot drawn by swans. Phoebus taught Hyakinthus how to use the bow, to play music, the art of prophecy, and all manner of exercises in the gymnasium. Regardless of the euphemistic nature of that last lesson, this relationship was a classic example of pedagogical practice, something that the Spartans observed strictly in their society, though it was common elsewhere as well. I believe this particular element was extremely important to the Spartans in their celebration of the event. Everything came to an end in tragedy, when one day the pair decided on a game of quoits. Anointing themselves and marking out a space, Apollo decided to cast his discus first. Wanting to impress, he released a powerful throw with the object raising high towards and slicing through the clouds. Equally keen to impress, Hyakinthus ran after in chase, wanting to catch the discus. As it fell from the clouds and landed heavily upon the earth, it bounced backwards, 
striking Hyacinthus in the head and mortally wounding him. Apollo's sorrow is palpable, and thankfully, Ovid in his Metamorphosis turns his elegant hand to describing the fate of the youth as follows. In a watered garden, if somebody breaks the stem of a violet, poppy, or lily, with yellow stamens thick in its cup, the flower will droop and suddenly lower its shriveling head. It can't stand up anymore. It is gazing down on the earth. So with the head of the dying youth, his disabled neck, too weak to bear the weight it was carrying, sank to his shoulder. I simply cannot recommend Ovid enough. All of his work is simply amazing. At any rate, what happened next was to be the apotheosis of Hyacinthus, as the grief-stricken Apollo witnessed his resurrection of sorts. Where the youth's blood struck the ground, iridescent purple flowers sprung up, signifying his rebirth. The flowers were known then, and still are, as the hyacinth, and adorn many a garden to this day. Now if we look at that story prosaically, we can see its transcendent nature clearly. Hyacinthus was, as far as the Dorians were concerned, indigenous to the region. The Olympic pantheon was fast supplanting the older form of worship, effectively killing off earlier practices. Nature deities were fundamentally designed to represent the cycle of death and rebirth, winter and summer. Apollo's accidental killing of his lover can be taken as poetically literal in that the inexorable rise of the Olympians was simply the times moving on. In Amicli, the sanctuary of Apollo Hyacinthus consisted of a statue of Apollo on top of a burial mound that was imagined the site of Hyacinthus's interment. Most likely the mound was the remains of the earlier Bronze Age focal point for the deity's worship, and early votive offerings dating to well before the Archaic Age had been found in the vicinity through digs. The Spartans dedicated three days for the celebration of Apollo Hyacinthus, occurring in the month of Hyacinthia, which was in early summer. The first day was to mourn the death of Hyacinthus, with the last two in honour of Apollo's sorrow. It was so important to the local religious calendar that even the Athenians, as part of a peace treaty during the Peloponnesian War, committed to attending the festival every year to placate Spartan aggression. It presents a fine and reasonably credible example of changing religious practices in the early stages of the Archaic period and the amalgamation rather than the exclusion of indigenous rites. There is an inherent strength within polytheistic worship. There can be no discrimination based on ideology as all of the deities were welcomed and absorbed, adding to the richness of the overall mythology. This is something that monotheism isn't particularly good at, as we've seen play out time and again since the advent of it. The final duality I'll look at is the festival of Carnea. Ostensibly a celebration of Apollo Carneus, its format and structure clearly go back to the very early times of the Dorian presence in the Peloponnese. Unfortunately, as we'll see, it does nothing to clear that presence up. Indeed, if anything, it goes a long way to confusing it even further. Celebrated in Sparta during the month of Carneus, August, over a period of 10 days, all hostilities were forbidden during its observance. Naturally, for so warlike a people, this presented several issues for the Spartans over the course of their history. Apart from missing the Battle of Marathon, the Carnea was also the reason why Leonidas could only march with 300 soldiers to the pass at Thermopylae, rather than the full Spartan complement. Thucydides also mentions an invasion of Epidaurus by the neighbouring Argives in 419 BCE. The Spartans were for sending aid to the Epidaurians, 
but were precluded due to the festival. Interestingly, as the Argives were Dorians as well, they too were supposed to observe the sacred rites of the Karnia. We are told, however, that they manipulated their religious calendar to avoid a cessation in hostilities, something the exceedingly pious Spartans weren't prepared to do in this instance. According to a 6th century CE work of lexicography, the name Carneus represented another pre-Olympic nature deity, responsible for the maintenance of flocks and herds. If you recall my theory of the Dorians being a pastoral people, then it would certainly stand to reason that this particular type of god would be very important to a nomadic people and their animals. The story that comes down to us is that during the return of the Heraclidae, an accompanying seer from Arcania named Carnus was accused of espionage and subsequently slain. A favourite of Apollo, the god avenged his prophet's death by visiting a plague upon the descendants of Heracles. In order to propitiate the god and lift the scourge of sickness, they instituted the Carnea festival. Now, Carnus is the ancient Greek word for ram, and Apollo's head is often represented with coiled ram's horns where his ears would be. The thought being there that Apollo Carneus is merely an emanation of the one being. I personally discount this, however, as the rites of the festival clearly have two parts of them, and as we saw with the Hyakinthia, this is quite possibly to satisfy the individual aspects of the separate deities. To those rites, the festival began with an interpretation of nature and the harvest. Five unmarried youths were selected, one from each tribe including Amicli, to oversee the event. During this period of service, the youths were not allowed to marry. Once selected, the Staphylodromoi, or the running with grapes, began. A group of young men, carrying bunches of grapes, chased an older man, possibly the head priest, through the centre of town. If the man was caught, it meant good luck for the city, and if not, bad luck was expected to ensue. Although extremely obscure in meaning, it's imagined that this display tied in somehow to a tradition of harvest. The priest was decked in garlands, which no doubt had the added benefit of slowing him down sufficiently to be caught. During this part of the festival, there also appears to have been a parade involving citizens carrying a boat or large raft upon which sat an effigy of Apollo. This has been taken to signify the Dorians crossing the Corinthian Gulf into the Peloponnese and possibly bringing Apollo with them on their migratory journey. The next phase involved the setting up of nine tents in the plains surrounding the city. Allotted to each tent were nine citizens who for the remaining nine days feasted and celebrated to the honour of Apollo. It seems significant to me at least the recurring use of the number nine here, but if it was historically, I can't tell, as no source I've come across makes mention of it. What is clear, though, is this part of the festival signified the military aspect of Apollo. Disappointingly, Despite having influenced Spartan decisions in war so often, the Carnea truly is shrouded in the mystery of time. That it was an all-Dorian festival, and not just individual to the Lacedaemonians, is certain. Kyrene in northern Africa, Thera on Santorini, Sibaris in Italy, and other cities of Dorian descent are recorded as having celebrated it as well. The three celebrations I've just described, Artemis or Thea, Apollo Hyakinthia, and the Carnea, expose the layered, multifaceted nature of Spartan worship, but they only paint half of the picture. Herodotus in his histories writes that the Spartans were prodigious for their monumental religiosity and superstition. In his words, they honour the things of the gods more highly than things of men. Remembering that this would be true of all Greeks at the time, 
Herodotus sought to single the Spartans out as taking things well and truly to the next level. From here, we'll fill in the rest of their story by looking at some of the other revered deities and practices within the region. We haven't mentioned her yet, but the chief deity of the city was Athena. Within Sparta, she had two epithets relating only to her aspect, not due to any form of duality in her nature. The first is Polyochos, meaning defender of the city, setting her out to be the chief protector of the citizenry. The second is Halkioikos, meaning of the brazen or bronze house, so called because the exterior of her temple was covered in bronze sheets. Built during the 6th century BCE, it replaced an earlier shrine that dates back to around the 900 BCE mark. Taking pride of place within the city, Athena's house resided on top of what passed as an acropolis within Sparta. Unlike the sanctuary to Artemis or Thea, here it sat, outside of the boundaries of the four original tribes, and clearly a place sacred to all Spartans. Athena was indeed a fitting goddess to rule over the famously bellicose Spartans. There is no aspect of her character or portfolio that does not see her ultimately suitable to war. She was often depicted in statuary, wearing a reclined Corinthian helmet, carrying a sword and a shield. It wasn't just her capability in battle that attracted the Spartans to her worship. It was also, most assuredly, her legendary virginity. Unconquered by man, in any way, shape or form, she was in this regard everything the Spartans aspired to be. Indeed, they emulated her unconquerable nature for several centuries on the field. It is quite likely that Artemis, also a virginal goddess, had similar respect from the Homoioi for her chastity. Everything we've looked at so far has roots that can be traced back to the very early stages of the Archaic phase, or even further back still into pre-Dark or pre-Mycenaean times. In comparison, the Gymnopedia is a comparatively modern concept first initiated in the year 668 BCE. In English, the word means literally, naked youths. Though put into context of the festival, it more than likely meant simply, unarmed youths. The first half of the 7th century was a period of substantial change and reform for the Spartan people, for reasons that we'll get into at length in future episodes. For now, it will suffice to say that they had suffered a crushing loss in battle to the city of Argos, and fended off a full-blown rebellion by the recently enslaved population of neighbouring Messene to the west of Laconia. These events set Sparta down a path of permanent militarisation, which coincided with the founding of musical schools. As I mentioned in the last episode on Lycurgus, the Lacedaemonians had a particular interest in music. In fact, an early, non-Spartan poet compared the Spartans with cicadas. They were always looking for a chorus to be a part of. The primary function of the Gymnopedia was the promotion of said music, enacted as a rite of passage for Spartan youths. Like many other religious events on the calendar, this one too was dedicated to the honour of Apollo. Ever pragmatic, the love of song wasn't entirely due to their being massive fans of the ancient Greek Top 40 countdown, but for its ability to train for war. Briefly, it was around this time too that the hoplite and phalanx-styled warfare began its ascendancy in Greek battlefield tactics. Relying on tight formations of troops, locked together by shields and presenting a wall of spear tips to the opposition, the success of the phalanx depended on its cohesion under stress and the press of two lines engaging. It's a well-known fact that the Spartans were the masters of this style of war throughout the classical period, and it was their dedication to music and dance that helped make them so. To understand that, we need to understand the roots of the word chorus. In ancient Greek, it meant simply to sing and dance together. 
That was precisely what occurred during the Gymnopedia, groups of unarmed youths dancing and singing together in unison. Practicing for the day, they would need to shout loud their war cries and march forward together in perfect unison into the teeth of enemy spears. The regular, rhythmic and predictable nature of the music transferred onto the movements of a 5,000 strong block of Spartan hoplites, eight ranks deep and over 600 files wide, all marching to the same beat. It can't be overstated how important cohesion was to such bodies of soldiers. During the crush of battle, it was discipline and unison that won the day. So, the celebration was an institutionalised, annual get-together to promote not only militaristic accord, but also social harmony. For most assuredly, over the ten days of the festival, there is evidence for similar dances involving women of all ages, and even dances for men and women together. Taking place in the Agora, or marketplace, around statues set up there to Artemis, Apollo, and their mother Leto. Along with dancing, participants also engaged in the Pankration, which was basically the ancient Greek version of mixed martial arts. First introduced into the Olympics in 648, this hand-to-hand blood sport was originally created in imitation of the great heroic age champions like Theseus and Heracles and their own techniques in defeating the many villains arrayed against them. It had virtually no rules at all, punching, kicking, chokes, locks and holds. Although not allowed at the Olympics, the Spartans also added biting and eye gouging as part of their arsenal of attacks. Truly vicious, it is presumed that on the third day of Thermopylae, Long after their spears had snapped and their sword blades dulled, that the Spartans took to the Persians using their skills in the Pankration. A 2nd century Roman from Syria named Lucian recorded in a work titled Anacharis, or Athletics in English, that during the celebration, the Lacedaemonians also participated in a sport that sounds suspiciously like the modern game of dodgeball. Played in the theatre, the players involved would run around the enclosed space and attempt to hit each other with thrown balls. Lucian is extremely light on the detail, to be fair, but you know what they say. If you can dodge a spear, you can dodge a ball. The final day of the festival saw men who were slightly older, in the 20 to 30 age bracket, join their younger companions in the chorus of singing and dancing, perhaps as a way of signifying the transition from youth to manhood. All in all, the festival seems to be one specifically designed to encourage strength, speed, and coordination of the citizenry to improve the cohesion not just of society, but also the army's performance in the new phalanx-styled warfare sweeping the lands. It worked. I've spoken about the Bronze Age ruins to the east of Sparta at a place known as Therapne. Archaeologists believe it a likely place, if any, for a Homeric Sparta. Indeed, it does appear as though there was once a Megaron palace temple there in Mycenaean times, though erosion has damaged portions of the site, leading to inconclusive findings. However, If you ask the Spartans, they would most definitely tell you that Therapne was the place of Menelaus' lofty palace, where he resided with his formidable wife, Helen. At some stage during the 9th century, they founded a religious sanctuary nearby to the Bronze Age remains, and dedicated it to Helen, Menelaus, and the Dioscuri, Castor and Polyduces. During this period, the natural, geographic seclusion of Laconia was being opened up by her aggressive people. Their world... Formerly enclosed by the Parnon and Taygetus mountains, all of a sudden got a lot larger through conquest, and perhaps for the first time began proper interactions with neighbouring city-states. It's possible that this connection brought the question of the Spartans' relative newcomer status to the Peloponnese to the fore. 
Seeking to connect themselves to the rich and vibrant history that was coalescing for the Greek people, they built this conglomerate sanctuary to tie themselves into that past. Not just the sons of Heracles, but also of Helen. Due to a paucity in the records regarding the site in antiquity, its true purpose is hard to glean. However, its decline in popularity during the 5th century supports its purpose for ancestral connection. During the 5th century, the Spartans defeated the Persians by land, and later on conquered mighty Athens. By that stage, they had no need of a mythical and heroic past. They were heroes in their own right and in their own time. With the political decline and military failure of the 4th century, the site fell into almost total disuse. Its inglorious end as a sacred place does belie an earlier period of remarkable importance. The last facet of Spartan religious practice I'll look at today will be their affinity with the Delphic Oracle. It seems from the distant future that Sparta's rise coincided with that of the Pythias. The connection first comes up in the record during the first quarter of the 8th century, during the reign of the kings Harileos and Archelaos, when it appears the oracle gave both kings its blessing in the conquest of Aegis. Located to the northwest of Sparta, and at the top end of the Eurotas watershed, the destruction of Aegis is the first evidence we have for the two kings at war together. Commensurately, it is also quite likely that these two kings were the first joint kings of Sparta to differentiate them from the purely mythical kings that came before. Either way, it was the beginning of a long and dedicated relationship with Apollo's chief oracle, one that was religious come political in nature. We saw previously how Lycurgus legendarily received his mandate of reform from the oracle. Historical figure or not, the Spartans themselves certainly believed that Apollo had wholeheartedly endorsed the laws of their city-state. Certainly, it makes for fantastic propaganda, at the very least. Time and again, we see the Spartans making the pilgrimage to consult the Pythia about a great range of issues. From how to behave, on where to colonise and who to attack, a great deal of their internal and foreign policy was received, as it were, from the mouth of the god. Now, the relationship was not always one of harmony and purity. In fact, at times, it could be downright nefarious and self-serving. With such weight were oracular suggestions from the Pythia held in, that kings sought whatever means necessary to achieve her favour. In 491 BCE, the Argead king Cleomenes infamously bribed the oracle to divine that his co-king, Demaratus, was no longer an acceptable ruler of Sparta, and it was Apollo's will that he be deposed. The pious Spartans did exactly that, and Demaratus promptly medized, going over to the Persians where he had a brilliant view of his valiant countrymen at Thermopylae, albeit from the other side. The Lacedaemonians certainly weren't the only ones seeking to use the Delphic Oracle for their own means. Twenty years before the previous event, an exiled party of Athenians bribed the Oracle as well. Seeking Spartan aid to retake Athens, whenever they went to receive an Oracle, the Spartans were told simply that they must help Athens throw off the yoke of the tyrant. Considering that several of the powerful families of Sparta were on good terms with that tyrant, named Hippias, it was a reasonably embarrassing request for them but eventually they conceded to the Pythia's wishes and the Athenian gold. They also adorned Delphi with several works of art, the most famous being the Serpent Column. Created from a tithe of the loot gathered after the Persian defeat at the Battle of Plataea in 479 BCE, it consisted of three snakes, coiled and wrapped around each other, coming apart at the top with the head seeming to hiss at the passerby. In Delphi it stood for some 800 years before Constantine the Great had it removed to embellish his new capital, Constantinople. You can still see it there today, unfortunately without its heads, within the remains of the old Hippodrome. 
just outside the Blue Mosque and across from the Agia Sophia. I can't tell you the countless hours I've sat on a nearby bench admiring it when I lived in Istanbul. A symbol of Spartan-led, Pan-Hellenic military dominance, of their devotion to Delphi and Apollo, and a historical marker separating East and West, it's an absolute must-see if you ever go. That is an account of the major religious festivals and observances of the Spartans. Quite a busy schedule indeed, and one preponderantly associated with Apollo in his various guises. We are fortunate that although scant, there is still enough information that we can see the shift in devotional practices from indigenous worship to amalgamation with the Olympian pantheon. I find the traces of pre-Dark Age deities fascinating and draw many parallels with Christianity's absorption of some pagan, Roman devotional rites. Ever a rigid people, the Spartans clung on to many of their archaic ideals for hundreds of years. To the rest of Greece, they seemed an inordinately pious, almost alien people who were both admired and abhorred in equal measure. They had Apollo on their side, however, and I don't think they cared a whit for the goodwill of their neighbours. Up next for the Spartan narrative, we'll get stuck into their early military conquests, including the First Mycenaean War and the enslavement of that land's people. The victory they achieved in that war set them on the path to dominance in the Peloponnese. So join me on Sunday, December the 6th for episode 19, The First Breath of an Empire. Before then, please join me on Sunday the 15th of November for episode 18, the final part in my retelling of the Golden Fleece Myth. Looking very forward to wrapping that up and getting back to one podcast a month rather than two. Until then, dear listeners, take good care and speak soon. I had to do a few takes getting through that part about the Spartans playing dodgeball. For anyone who's seen the Ben Stiller movie, you know what I mean. That washing the hubcaps part in particular kept getting stuck in my mind. Very distracting. Please check out my website, spartanhistorypodcast.com, where I have extra information, photos, and maps of the areas discussed. You can find me on Twitter, at Spartan underscore history, and on Facebook too, at Spartan History Podcast. If you like this episode, and are keen to hear more, Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you catch your pods from and leave a review. See you next time.